Section 18 of Celebrated Crimes, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Julie Mulligan. Celebrated Crimes, Volume 1 by Alexandre Dumas. Translated by G. B. Ives. Section 18. The Borgias, Chapter Ten, Part One. The French army was now preparing to cross the Alps a second time, under the command of Trivuls. Louis the Twelfth had come as far as Lyon in the company of Cesar Borgia and Giuliano della Rovere, in whom he had forced a reconciliation, and towards the beginning of the month of May had sent his vanguard before him soon to be followed by the main body of the army. The forces he was employing in the second campaign of conquest were sixteen hundred lances, five thousand Swiss, nine thousand Gascons, and three thousand five hundred infantry, raised from all parts of France. On the thirteenth of August, this whole body, amounting to nearly fifteen thousand men, where to combine their forces with the Venetians, arrived beneath the walls of Arezzo, and immediately laid siege to the town. Ludovico Sforza's position was a terrible one. He was now suffering from his imprudence in calling the French into Italy. All the allies he had thought he might count upon were abandoning him at the same moment, either because they were busy about their own affairs, or because they were afraid of the powerful enemy that the Duke of Milan had made for himself. Maximilian, who had promised him a contribution of four hundred lances to make up for not renewing the hostilities with Louis the Twelfth, that had been interrupted, had just made a liege with the circle of Swabia to war against the Swiss, whom he had declared rebels against the empire. The Florentines, who had engaged to furnish him with three hundred men-at-arms and two thousand infantry, if he would help them to retake Pisa, had just retracted their promise because of Louis the Twelfth's threats, and had undertaken to remain neutral. Frederick, who was holding back his troops for the defence of his own states, because he supposed, not without reason, that Milan once conquered, he would again have to defend Naples, sent him no help, no men, no money, in spite of his promises. Ludovico Sforza was therefore reduced to his own proper forces. But as he was a man powerful in arms and clever in artifice, he did not allow himself to succumb at the first blow, and in all haste fortified Anonna, Novarro, and Alessandria, sent off Gaggiazzo with troops, to that part of the Milanese territory which borders on the state of Venice, and collected on the Po as many troops as he could. But these precautions availed him nothing against the impetuous onslaught of the French, who in a few days had taken Anonna, Arezzo, Novaro, Vogera, Castelnuovo, Ponte Corona, Tartone, and Alessandria, while Trivuls was on the march to Milan. Seeing the rapidity of this conquest and their numerous victories, Ludovico Sforza, despairing of holding out in his capital, 
resolved to retire to Germany with his children, his brother, Cardinal Ascanio Zvorza, and his treasure, which had been reduced in the course of eight years, from one and a half million to two hundred ducats. But before he went, he left Bernardino da Carte in charge of the castle of Milan. In vain did his friends warn him to distrust this man. In vain did his brother Ascanio offer to hold the fortress himself, and offer to hold it to the very last. Ludovico refused to make any change in his arrangements, and started on the 2nd of September, leaving in the citadel three thousand foot, and enough provisions, ammunition, and money to sustain a siege of several months. Two days after Ludovico's departure, the French entered Milan. Ten days later, Bernardino da Carte gave up the castle before a single gun had been fired. Twenty-one days had sufficed for the French to get possession of the various towns, the capital, and all the territories of their enemy. Louis Twelfth received the news of this success while he was at Lyon, and he at once started for Milan, where he was received with demonstrations of joy that were really sincere. Citizens of every rank had come out three miles distance from the gates to receive him, and forty boys, dressed in cloth of gold and silk, marched before him, singing hymns of victory, composed by poets of the period, in which the king was styled their liberator and the envoy of freedom. The great joy of the Milanese people was due to the fact that friends of Louis had been spreading reports beforehand that the king of France was rich enough to abolish all taxes. And so soon as the second day from his arrival at Milan, the conqueror made some slight reduction, granted important favours to certain Milanese gentlemen, and bestowed the town of Vigavano on Trivuls as a reward for his swift and glorious campaign. But Cesar Borgia, who had followed Louis XII with a view to playing his part in the great hunting-ground of Italy, scarcely waited for him to attain his end, when he claimed the fulfilment of his promise, which the king, with his accustomed loyalty, hastened to perform. He instantly put at the disposal of Cesar three hundred lances under the command of Yves d'Allegre, and four thousand Swiss, under the command of the bailiff of Dijon, as a help in his work of reducing the vicars of the church. We must now explain to our readers who these new personages were, whom we introduce upon the scene by the above name. During the eternal wars of Galbs and Ghibellines, and the long exile of the popes at Avignon, most of the towns and fortresses of the Romagna had been usurped by petty tyrants, who, for the most part, had received from the empire the investiture of their new possessions. But ever since German influence had retired beyond the Alps, and the popes had again made Rome the centre of the Christian world, all the small princes, robbed of their original protector, had rallied round the papal see, and received at the hands of the Pope a new investiture, and now they paid annual dues, for which if they received the particular title of Duke, Count, or Lord, and the general name of Vicar of the Church. It had been no difficult matter for Alexander, 
scrupulously examining the actions and behaviour of these gentlemen during the seven years that had elapsed since he was exalted to St. Peter's throne, to find in the conduct of each one of them something that could be called an infraction of the treaty between vessels and suzerain. Accordingly, he brought forward his complaints at a tribunal established for the purpose, and obtained sentence from the judges, to the effect that the vicars of the church, having failed to fulfil the conditions of their investiture, were despoiled of their domains, which would again become the property of the Holy See. As if the Pope was now dealing with men against whom it was easier to pass a sentence than to get it carried out, he had nominated as Captain-General the new Duke of Valentinois, who was commissioned to recover the territories for his own benefit. The lords in question were the Maladesti of Rimini, the Sforza of Pesaro, the Manfredi of Venza, the Riari of Imola and Farli, the Variani of Camerina, the Montefeltri of Urbino, and the Cetani of Sermoneta. But the Duke of Valentinois, eager to keep as warm as possible his great friendship with his ally and relative Louis the Twelfth, was, as we know, staying with him at Milan so long as he remained there where, after a month's occupation, the king retraced his steps to his own capital. The Duke of Valentinois ordered his men-at-arms, and his Swiss to await him between Parma and Modena, and departed post-haste for Rome, to explain his plans to his father, Viva Voce, and to receive his final instructions. When he arrived, he found that the fortune of his sister Lucrezia had been greatly augmented in his absence not from the side of her husband Alfonso, whose future was very uncertain now in consequence of Louise's successes, which had caused some coolness between Alfonso and the Pope, but from her father's side, upon whom at this time she exercised an influence more astonishing than ever. The Pope had declared Lucrezia Borgia of Aragon, life governor of Spoleto, and its duchy, with all emoluments, rights and revenues accruing thereunto. This had so greatly increased her power and improved her position, that in these days she never showed herself in public without a company of two hundred horses, ridden by the most illustrious ladies and noblest knights of Rome. Moreover, as a twofold affection of her father was a secret to nobody, the first relates in the church, the frequenters of the Vatican, the friends of His Holiness, were all her most humble servants. Cardinals gave her their hands when she stepped from her litter or her horse. Archbishop disputed the honour of celebrating Mass in her private apartments. But Lucretia had been obliged to quit Rome in order to take possession of her new estates, and as her father could not spend much time away from his beloved daughter, he resolved to take into his hands the town of Nepi, which, on a former occasion, as the reader will doubtless remember, he had bestowed on Ascanio Sforza in exchange for his suffrage. Ascanio had naturally lost this town when he attached himself to the fortunes of the Duke of Milan, his brother, and when the Pope was about to take it again, he invited his daughter Lucrezia to join him there and be present at the rejoicings held in honour of his resuming its possession. 
Lucrezia's readiness in giving way to her father's wishes brought her a new gift from him. This was a town and territory of Sermoneta, which belonged to the Cetani. Of course, the gift was yet a secret, because the two owners of the Signori had first to be disposed of, one being Monsignore Giacomo Cetano, apostolic pronotary, the other Prospero Cetano, a young cavalier of great promise, but as both lived at Rome and entertained no suspicion, but indeed supposed themselves to be in high favour with his holiness, the one by virtue of his position, the other of his courage, the matter seemed to present no great difficulty. So, directly after the return of Alexander to Rome, Giacomo Cetano was arrested, on what pretext we know not, was taken to the castle of Sant'Angelo, and there died shortly after of poison. Prospero Cetano was strangled in his own house. After these two deaths, which, which both occurred so suddenly as to give no time for either to make a will, the people declared that Sermonita and, and all of her property appertaining to the Cetani devolved upon the apostolic chamber, and they were sold to Lucretia for the sum of eighty thousand crowns, which her father refunded to her the day after. Though Cesar hurried to Rome, he found when he arrived that his father had been beforehand with him, and had made the beginning of his conquests. Another fortune also had been making prodigious strides during Cesar's stay in France, viz. the fortune of John Borgia, the Pope's nephew, who had been one of the most devoted friends of the Duke of Gandia up to the time of his death. It was said in Rome, and not in a whisper, that the young cardinal owed the favours heaped upon him by his holiness less to the memory of the brother than to the protection of the sister. Both these reasons made John Borgia a special object of suspicion to Cesar, and it was with an inward vow that he should not enjoy his new dignities very long that the Duke of Valentinois heard that his cousin John had just been nominated Cardinal Alatere of all the Christian world, and had quitted Rome to make a circuit through all the pontifical states with a suit of archbishops, bishops, prelates, and gentlemen, such as would have done honour to the Pope himself. Cesar had only come to Rome to get news, so he only stayed three days, and then, with all the troops his holiness could supply, rejoined his forces on the borders of the Udza, and marched at once to Imola. This town, abandoned by its chiefs, who had retired to Forli, was forced to capitulate. Imola taken, Cesar marched straight upon Forli. There he met with a serious check, a check, moreover, which came from a woman, Caterina Sforza, widow of Girolamo and mother of Ottaviano Riario, had retired to this town and stirred up the courage of the garrison by putting herself, her goods and her person under their protection. Cesar saw that it was no longer a question of a sudden capture, but of a regular siege, so he began to make all his arrangements with a view to it, and, placing a battery of cannon in front of the place where the wall seemed to him the weakest, 
he ordered an uninterrupted fire to be continued until the breach was practicable. When he returned to the camp after giving this order, he found there John Borgia, who had gone to Rome from Ferrara, and was unwilling to be so near Cesare, without paying him a visit. He was received with effusion, and apparently the greatest joy, and stayed three days. On the fourth day, all the officers and members of the court were invited to a grand farewell supper, and Cesar bade farewell to his cousin, charging him with dispatches for the Pope, and lavishing upon him all the tokens of affection he had shown on his arrival. Cardinal Gian Borgia posted off as soon as he left the supper-table, but on arriving at Urbino he was seized with such a sudden and strange indisposition that he was forced to stop. But after a few minutes, feeling rather better, he went on. Scarcely, however, had he entered Rocca Cantrada, when he again felt so extremely ill that he resolved to go no farther, and stayed a couple of days in the town. And then, as he thought he was a little better again, and as he had heard the news of the taking of Forli, and also that Caterina Sforza had been taken prisoner while she was making an attempt to retire into the castle, he resolved to go back to Cesar and congratulate him on this victory. But at Fasambrani he was forced to stop a third time, although he had given up his carriage for a litter. This was his last halt. The same day he sought his bed, never to rise from it again. Three days later he was dead. His body was taken to Rome and buried without any ceremony in the church of Santa Maria del Popolo, where lay awaiting him the corpse of his friend, the Duke of Gandia, and there was now no more talk of the young cardinal, high as his rank had been, than if he had never existed. Thus, in gloom and silence, passed away all those who were swept to destruction by the ambition of that terrible trio, Alexander, Lucrezia, and Cesar. End of section 18